You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. Select some towns to be your cities of refuge, to which a person who has killed someone accidentally may flee. So they will be places of refuge from the avenger so that a person accused of murder may not die before he stands trial before the assembly. These towns you give will be your cities of refuge. Give three on this side of the Jordan and three in Canaan as cities of refuge. These six towns will be a place of refuge for Israelites, aliens and any other people living among them, so that anyone who has killed another accidentally can flee there. If a man strikes someone with an iron object so that he dies, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Or if anyone has a stone in his hand that could kill, and he strikes someone so that he dies, he is a murderer. If anyone has a wooden object in his hand that could kill, and he hits someone so that he dies, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. If anyone with malice a forethought shoves another or throws something at him intentionally so that he dies, or if in hostility he hits him with his fist so that he dies, the person shall be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. But if without hostility someone suddenly shoves another or throws something at him unintentionally, or without seeing him drops a stone on him that could kill him, and he dies, then since he was not his enemy and did not intend to harm him, The assembly must judge between him and the avenger of blood according to these regulations. The assembly must protect the one accused of murder from the avenger of blood and send him back to the city of refuge to which he fled. He must stay there until the death of the high priest who was anointed with holy oil. But if the accused ever goes outside the limits of the city of refuge to which he has fled and the avenger of blood finds him outside the city, The avenger of blood may kill the accused without being guilty of murder. The accused must stay in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. May he return to his own property. These are the legal requirements for you throughout the generations to come, wherever you live. Today we will uh, be taking a look at a book of the Bible that has shipwrecked many uh, Bible reading plans. So oftentimes Christians start out the year and they have all the best intentions in the world and they start with Genesis and the story moves along and they get to Exodus and the story moves along. And there's a little bit of momentum going when you get to Exodus 20 and it flips over to law and then you get to Leviticus and then you get to numbers and then usually you stop. So what I've found is uh, the reason for this is because we don't understand and we don't see how clearly the scriptures point us to Jesus in the law. We learn in the book of Luke, after the resurrection, Christ comes to the apostles. He comes to some of his disciples, and he meets them on the road to Emmaus. And he says to them, you of little faith, let me show you how much you can see me in the Old Testament. And he explains, starting with the law, and then with the prophets, all the things that were prophesied of him. Today, our passage here uh, is quoted on by Matthew Henry, who was a probably one of the most famous uh, Bible commentators in uh, the Reformation and post-Reformation era. And he says of this passage that in this part of the Constitution, which is just his way of saying law, in this part of the law, there's a great deal of both good law 
and pure gospel. So for today's text, if we know where to look, we'll see Jesus in three distinct figures. The first is the avenger of blood. The second is the city of refuge. And the third is the death of the high priest. So just one more time for you note takers. We see Christ in the avenger of blood, in the city of refuge, and in the death of the high priest. So before we get to that, I want to go through the passage and just understand in its context what was going on. Because it's a little bit confusing because our, our criminal justice system works very differently than the law of God. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that our system is wrong. Um, it's just a different way that God has implemented his justice in a different context. But in the Old Testament, there wasn't anything like a standing police force. So in our culture, uh, the police are out and about. Uh, they are monitoring the world for crimes that are occurring. Crimes are reported to them. They investigate crimes. Those crimes are then brought to our judicial system. A person is tried, uh, and if they are found guilty, they are punished. But in the Old Testament, accusations were made before the local congregation. And if the evidence, primarily oral testimony, was sufficient to convict the accused, the person who made the accusation would be the person who fulfilled the penalty. So in the cases of murder, it was typically the next of kin who brought the accusation and therefore carried out the execution. And this served two functions. The first was that it would be very rare for someone to accuse someone of, false, of a false crime because to accuse someone of a false crime and then to be the one that has to put them to death is a much more difficult thing to than just to come with a false accusation. Uh, elsewhere in the law, we read that if someone comes with a false accusation, that is then proven to be false, that the person bearing the false testimony will suffer the consequences that they attempted to inflict falsely on the other person. So if I were to come and falsely accuse Tim of murder, then the response, if I was proven to be wrong, would be that Tim would be the one who threw the first stone. So it's a pretty steep situation, but God knew what he was doing. And in this situation, the next of kin, in the case of a murder, was called the avenger of blood. We also see in this passage that the scripture is making a distinction between murder and what we call manslaughter. So we see that God assigns six cities of refuge, three of them on the west side of the Jordan and three in the promised land itself. And in verses 16 through 20, what we see is that premeditated murder, that is murder with the intent to kill, whether it's with an object or by throwing someone off a cliff or by punching them and killing them, premeditated murder done with malice was punishable by execution. However, it also recognizes that there's a class of uh, man killing that is unintentional. And this unintentional manslaughter was not an executable offense. And so in this passage, we sometimes see, uh, or we, we read commentators who treat this as though it's a sort of vigilante justice, right? We see that if someone kills someone in your family, you get to kill them back. Uh, unless they run to the city of refuge uh, and we see kind of the most brutal and violent game of tag in history where the city of refuge serves as kind of the home base where you're safe. However, this isn't really what's going on in the text. We wouldn't expect God to implement a situation of vigilante justice because elsewhere in the text, he speaks strongly against that. And we know that the scriptures are not incoherent. So most of the time, in this time in history, people lived in the town that they were born in. Most people never traveled more than 30 or 40 miles away from their home. 
Israel itself was very small. So even the people who were going to the temple every year were still covering a, um, a tract of land that was about the size of New Hampshire. So although they were walking on foot and would take a lot of time, the actual distance was not all that great. So likewise, if someone was accidentally killed, the avenger of blood would probably live in the same town as well. And as we can imagine, if it comes to the front that someone has killed your family member, you're not usually thinking terribly rationally. And so we might expect there to be some miscarriages of justice if things were not slowed down a little bit. So the city of refuge was established for the person who unintentionally kills someone to flee to in order to stand a fair trial. It would be similar to the idea that we put someone, we might put someone in protective custody. Um, and we may not release them on bond or bail if uh, there was a threat to their life. Uh, not because they don't deserve that or because they are not granted that, but sometimes we may not release them because it's not safe to release them. The city of refuge served a similar capacity, is that you could flee to the city of uh, refuge, you could claim sanctuary there, and then the city of refuge and the elders of the city of refuge would be responsible for protecting you from the avenger of blood. So they would escort you back to the city where the crime allegedly took place. They would bring you before the congregation and the congregation would weigh out the evidence. If the congregation found you guilty of murder, then the execution would take place. But if the city or the congregation found you guilty of manslaughter, then you would be brought back to the city of refuge and you would be protected from the avenger of blood. However, the manslaughterer must remain in the city of refuge in order to take advantage of this protection. If he somehow disregarded this provision, which God had made in his law and fled from the city of refuge and was found outside of the city of refuge by the avenger of blood, the avenger of blood could have his way with them and would not be counted murder. We, we should not still understand this as vigilante justice though. Because in the law, the understanding is that if you flee from the city of refuge, if you spurn that protection that God has afforded for you, that you are in a sense disregarding the law. You are in a sense disregarding the conviction of manslaughter and the only other option is murder. So the assumption is that if a person leaves the city of refuge, that they are acknowledging that they did in fact murder the person and so the avenger of blood is entitled to take vengeance. However, upon the death of the high priest, the manslaughterer was free to return to his own town of origin for a number of reasons. Presumably though, enough time has passed that the vengeance and its desire for it has subsided. And so these laws, these regulations were put in place for a functioning society in Israel to prevent vigilante justice and to allow for people who have accidentally committed uh, a crime to have the proper protections. So now that we understand the historical context and the way that these figures function in their original context, we'll turn and take a look at the first of our elements. So although the, the first element to appear in our text is the city of refuge, we're actually going to discuss the avenger of blood first. And the way that we see Christ in this passage, in this figure, is something that we might not expect. We rightfully sing songs like, what a friend, I have in Jesus, but not all are Jesus's friends. There are those in the world who have spurned his love. There are those who have rebelled against his father. There are those who would spit in his face if they had the chance. 
And for those who are not found in Christ, for those who are not found under the protection of his wings, Christ is the avenger of blood. Christ is the one who comes and satisfies the wrath of the Father. Sometimes that takes place in time. Sometimes that takes place in temporal consequences for sin. Sometimes people die because they've made bad choices. And sometimes they die because they've sinned against the God of the universe. But more often than not, what we see is the wicked prosper. And we ask like the psalmist, like Asaph, why is it that the righteous often suffer and the wicked seem to get off scot-free? And the answer that we're given is that they don't. That in the end, their punishment is just and it is completed. So I want to go through a few passages here that sort of show us this and help us understand the biblical theology behind the avenger of blood and how Christ fulfills that image. So if you'll turn over to Psalm chapter 2. I preached on Psalm 2 uh, a couple months ago, and we talked about how um, the rulers of the world, as they rebel against Christ, will ultimately get what they deserve. So look with me at uh, Psalm 2, verses 7 through 12. David writes, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So we see here that um, although there are many who resist the will and the desires of God who spurn his law, that in the end, those who do so, who fail to serve and kiss the sun, will be dashed to pieces like pottery. So whether it is the legislature in Chicago who recently repealed a law that would forbid the most gruesome kinds of abortions that you can imagine, or whether it is our own state legislature who has decided that there is no longer anything you can do which justifies the death penalty. You can literally do any heinous crime you want in New Hampshire, and the worst that can happen is you'll end up with life in prison. Now, that's not a pleasant thing, but it certainly is not the death penalty, and that sends a signal to our culture that life is not important. But we'll see that Christ will eventually correct these wrongs. And as I said, his wrath can flare up in a moment. So we should not be quick to assume that we are not objects of his wrath. Although we have faith in Christ, although we understand the gospel, we must always recognize that the Father still disciplines us. And we are called to make our election sure. We are called to test ourselves and see if we are indeed in the faith. And we'll get to more of that when we get to the city of refuge. Turn over with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 7. We're going to look at a passage which clearly connects uh, what's going on in the text to Christ. So, Daniel 7, and we're going to look at verses 9 through 10. 
which you'll find on page 631 of the Pew Bibles. So this is, uh, Daniel is speaking here, and he uh, has a night vision, uh, and we find out later that this vision was terrifying to him. And he says, as I looked, thrones were set in their place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, and the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The courts were seated, and the books were opened. So in this passage here, we see that there is a throne, and there's a figure on the throne, and this th figure on the throne is the Ancient of Days. So we see the God of the universe, God the Father himself sitting on the throne. We see that his clothing is white, his hair is white, which uh, signifies his righteousness and his purity. We see that his throne is flaming with fire, and there's some sort of wheels that are circling the, the throne. We see something similar in Ezekiel, and these are also flowing with fire. There's a river of fire coming before him. So we often look at this and we think sort of um, that this is an interesting scene, but we don't realize that this is a picture of judgment. So what Daniel is seeing is he's, he's swept into the throne room of God. He's pulled forward in time in this vision to the final judgment that is to come. And he sees that there's this, there's this rage, there's this wrath flowing from the throne, and he sees it in the form of fire. And the court was seated. So just as in our courtroom, everyone stands when the judge comes in, and then they sit as the judge begins his or her work, and then the books were opened. Uh, flip over on the page here to verses 13. Oh, it's on the same page. So verses 13, he says, In my vision at night I looked, and there was before me one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so we have this scene before us of judgment. We have the the judge of the universe sitting down on the throne. And then we have this figure who appears to be a man who, who walks into the throne room. He comes in with the clouds of heaven. And when he approaches the ancient of days, instead of being destroyed, like we would expect, he is given authority and glory and sovereign power. And all of the 10,000s of 10,000s around the throne, which is the Hebrew figure, the Hebrew way of saying an innumerable amount. Right? They didn't, their numbers didn't go higher than that. So in order to describe this multitude that could not be numbered, they use this phrase, ten thousands times ten thousands. They bow and they worship the son, the son of man. And we see that his dominion will never end. So we're going to wrap this section on the Avenger of Blood up by turning over briefly to Revelation. We're going to look at chapter 14. We often uh, hear or we subtly believe that the, the God of the Old Testament was this wrathful, vengeful tyrant. And then we come to the New Testament to see sort of this lovey-dovey Jesus, this meek and mild Jesus who's carrying a lamb under his arm. And as I said, we certainly have uh, a warrant for seeing Jesus as this kind shepherd for his people. But contrary to famous figures like Andy Stanley, 
God does not operate differently in the New Testament than he does in the Old. We see just as much grace and love in the Old Testament as we do in the New. And the images of uh, judgment actually increase and get more intense when we get to the New Testament. So turn, turn to chapter 14. And we're going to look at verse 14. And he says, I looked and there was before me a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud. Take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who is seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from earth's vines, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridle for a distance of 1,600 stadii. Now, we often think about the, the harvest, and we remember Christ's words in the gospel, uh, which are said in a more positive sense that the harvest was ready and the workers were ready to go out into the field. And in that sense, he's talking about evangelism. He's talking about going out into the world and proclaiming the gospel and preparing those who are chosen by God to receive salvation. Now, there may be an element of this in the first swinging of the sickle here, that there are those from the earth who are harvested. But we see clearly that the second harvest is not one of salvation, but one of judgment. And so we see that it's not, Jesus, who is standing there wringing his hand, saying, oh, I wish I could have saved these people. But instead, we see that the Son of Man is presiding over all of these events. And so just as he presides over the harvesting of the, the elect, he presides over the harvesting of the reprobate. And we see here that the reprobate, figured here as grapes, are thrown into a wine press outside of the city and that they're trampled on by God's wrath. And we have this graphic picture of blood flowing out of the, the bridle or out of the wine press. And it raises to the shoulders of the horses for 1600 stadii. Now that's about 180 miles. So this is a gruesome figure and it's intended to be a gruesome figure. But imagine an area of 180 miles filled with blood that is up to a horse's shoulder. It's terrible. It's a terrible thought. And for those who are outside of Christ, that is the fate that awaits them. Those who Christ does not protect from the wrath of God will suffer the wrath of God at Christ's own hand. So we must not ever forget that just as we confess that Christ for us and our, our salvation became man, that he will also come again to judge the quick and the dead. Let's move on to the city of refuge. So while the first element was a good dose of the law, a second element is for us who are Christ, the pure gospel. Just as God graciously provided a safe refuge inside of the city, he has provided for his elect the refuge of Christ. 
Turn over to Hebrews chapter 6, and we'll begin to explore how the scriptures explain this to us. Hebrews chapter 6, and we will look at verses 4 through 8. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. So I start with this verse because the city of refuge is sort of a double-edged sword. For those who flee into the city of refuge, there is safety. For those who do not flee to the city of refuge or leave its safety, there is still a warning of wrath. And as I said, we must all be careful to not ignore these passages. Because although in this church we believe that those who come to faith in Christ and who are saved by him can never be snatched out of his hand, we also understand that there are many who believe that they are in that status who in in fact are not. And that's where we have the repeated emphasis in scripture to observe our works, to understand if we are in the faith, to see if we are the land that produces a good crop or if we are the land that produces thorns and thistles. So Christ frequently talks about the fact that they will know, we will be known by our works. Now our assurance comes first and foremost from the promises of Christ, and we'll talk about that in a second. But if we look at our lives, if you look at your life and you see nothing but bad fruit, you have to ask yourself whether you are possibly a bad tree. If you look at your life and all you see is goat-like behavior, you have no reason to think that you're one of the sheep. And the only way to know for sure is to run to Christ, to flee to the city of refuge and to remain within its borders. So we're going to continue down the passage here, uh, starting in verse 13. It says, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by something greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two, uh, with two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So as you would suspect, these two final figures begin to blur together a little bit. But what we see here is that the promise made to Abraham, and we we heard in our meditation verse that Abraham came into the country, but he was looking for a city whose builder was God. And we learn from elsewhere in the scripture that that city, which will descend down from heaven, the new Jerusalem, the new Zion, that that city is in fact Christ. 
that our hope is not in some restoration of a geopolitical kingdom in the Middle East. Our hope is not found in some sort of land conquest or manifest destiny. It's not found in restructuring and shaping civilization to look like ancient Israel or what we imagine some Christendom to look, but it is found in clinging to the promises of Christ. And because Christ is God, and because God swore on his own very unchanging nature, these promises are eternally secure. We read elsewhere in Hebrews that the Son lives evermore to make intercession on our behalf. So he has gone into the holiest place. He's gone directly into the presence of the Father where we could not go, and he carries his own righteous blood in. And by that blood, he makes appeal on our behalf. And because of that appeal, we can be saved, and we will be saved. We're going to close uh, briefly with uh, this third element. As I've said, the, the second and third element of the city of refuge and the high priest, they sort of blur together because they signify basically the same thing. So we're going to stay in the book of Hebrews. And if you can turn over to chapter 9, which is just one page to the right, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 11. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that were already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of blood and goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ, who is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Now that he has died a ransom to set them free from sins committed under the first covenant. So just as we saw in our passage today, that the city of refuge was a temporary holding place, a temporary place of security. We understand that the death of the high priest made that safety permanent. And so although we understand that the figure doesn't directly come over, we understand that the death of our high priest has also secured our salvation. That the death of our high priest and his resurrection has secured our life. And his ongoing intercession has secured not only freedom from sin and from the penalty of the law, but has obtained for us a righteous life and an inheritance. We know that because he has died and through faith we have received all the benefits of his work, that he's not only justified us, but he is sanctifying us and that we will be growing in holiness as he sets us apart for his own purposes. So we understand that although the old ceremonial laws only made the people externally clean, that our high priest has cleansed us both inside and out. So what do we do with this information? Right? This is all good and well. This is a, a nice way to understand and maybe power through our Old Testament reading plan a little bit more because we can see the finish line of the gospel a little bit more clearly. 
How does this actually affect us when we go back to work or school tomorrow? There's really only one question that matters based on today's reading. Beloved, is Christ a city of refuge for you? Or is he the avenger of blood? Are you safe within his borders? Or have you strayed outside of his protection? Has the death of our high priest guaranteed you permanent protection from the wrath of God? Or have you stubbornly refused to seek shelter under his blood? Sometimes Christians think we graduate from the gospel. And more often than that, we think we graduate from the law. But we need to hear the law and the gospel every day. So in our passage today, we understand that there still is a law for us. For those of us who may not be in Christ, that law has nothing for us but condemnation. That law has nothing for us but terror and fear and judgment. But because of the gospel, because of what Christ did in filling the righteous requirements of the law, because of his perfect and perpetual obedience, the law has become for us sweetness. It's become for us the path of good works that we walk on. It's become for us the model that we see that helps us understand what it means to be like Jesus. So today I would encourage you as we go from this place to reflect on this, to reflect on the question, to obey Paul's command to examine yourself and to see if you're in the faith. I have to do it every day. You have to do it every day. We should daily be looking at our lives. And it's times like this that we gather to spur each other on to good works. We spur ourselves on, we spur each other on to a life of holiness because we love the Lord and because he has made that possible for us. Please pray with me. Father, we know that everything that you have given us in your word is useful and profitable for our teaching, for our edification, but also for our reproof and correction. So Lord, let, let this word that you have preached to us today, let this scripture that you have graciously given to us serve as a rubric for us. Let the law which you delivered to your people, which you've summarized by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Let this law be for us the measurement of our holiness. Not the thing that makes us holy, not the thing that saves us from sin, but Lord, the thing that we obey out of a grateful heart. But Lord, if we look at your law and we sense nothing but fear, Lord, help us to understand that that very well could be the Holy Spirit telling us that we are still under condemnation. And help us to flee from the avenger of blood into the city of refuge. Help us to seek shelter within the borders of the provisions that you've given for us. Lord, we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our great and faithful high priest, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.